Oh, hello there. It's Monday, and we have a great show for you. First up, we're talking Beyonce's latest project that comes out tonight, and then Michelle Buteau is here to make some jokes with me. So you stick right there, and I'll see you on the timeline after I take another nap. Good morning, Twitter. I'm Alex Berg. He's Zach Stafford, and you are watching AM to DM. Ooh, I'm so well rested. I know you're looking like a little sweet angel no, baby, I, just laying there taking a nap before you. the show. Angel baby, I love that. <laughs> thank you. That's what everyone calls me now, angel baby. I, I mean, don't tempt me because <laughs> oh <my God>. I might. <laughs> well, before we jump into the show, I need to bring up your tweets again because you had a great weekend. I did have a really good. And week. I look at this first. Yes. The look. You went to Hustlers, but not only did you go see Hustlers, but you brought fashion. Listen, you have to. to. <laughs> I, I, I wanted to honor this fine piece of cinema by wearing, a, you know, a cute little outfit. So I tried to do that. And I also saw it in a movie theater that serves booze and food, uh, which is the best because then you're like waiting for the movie to start. Yeah. And drinking. Have a cocktail. It seemed like the appropriate environment. And you went with your partner and I, I did, have yes. to just share with everyone, Alex really loves her partner. <laughs> like every photo you just see like so much, you know, like just so much comfort, comfort there that you actually like each other. I know. I mean, <laughs> so it, many people don't like their partner. You know, it's very endearing that right now you're still in the stage where you enjoy mm-hmm. hearing about yeah. it, but like eventually it will get annoying. I'll get annoying. tired of it. Like it's okay. I don't think I that will that get annoying, but there's something I have to bring up today that is getting very, very annoying to me. And it's the truth. keeps happening. Here's a tweet from Complex. Beyonce announces making the gift documentary on ABC, a behind-the-scenes TV special on the making of her soundtrack, The Lion King, The Gift. <sighs> well, this part isn't the thing. This part is not the This is not the thing. This is the very this exciting, is, This is like greasing part. me up, because first we have to celebrate that she has a new special out tonight. Incredible new movie. It's going to be the behind-the-scenes of uh, The Lion King, the, make, uh, the Gift soundtrack, which was incredible. The movie, meh. The soundtrack, incredible. <laughs> But something else happened this weekend that really sours this for me because while she just created some amazing art, no one in the big institutions is going to see it as art. Right. The weekend wasn't all Beyonce celebrations. The Emmys happened, and she was robbed. Here's a tweet from Torre. Emmy voters chose Jim Corden's carpool karaoke chatty chat with Paul McCartney over Beyonce's massive production that was a salute to HBCU culture for Outstanding Variety Special. What in the actual fuck? The disrespect for black culture is clear. And I mean, like, carpool karaoke? I'm sorry, what? It's a car with a GoPro. I know. And that's literally it. I don't want to hate on anybody's art and their creativity, (sighs) but uh, just when you think about the execution of Homecoming, uh, the intentionality, uh, just how amazing it was to watch, like an episode of Carpool Karaoke. Like, you've seen, well, it's not even have you seen Homecoming. How many times have you seen Homecoming? Like, multiple times. Multiple times. And every time. From time time to time, I'll watch a clip. Right? And every time you watch it, you're overwhelmed with that this woman just had twins and is out here getting her life yes. and getting us together. And that was the most incredible because she was also, during Homecoming, also prepping for her next tour. So she's just this incredible person. The film itself is incredible. Never anything, I've never seen anything like it. And then for it to lose an it, Emmy? It, it, it makes you wonder, like, did y'all even watch no. both of these things to, to vote for, it's, I mean. And I this know. is the second time this has happened. Lemonade also did not get an Emmy and was an incredible moment for HBO. Um, so, you know, Beyonce keeps losing, and I don't understand why, but she doesn't need your awards. It doesn't matter. No, but I think that it also points to the fact that, like, we can't always look at these awards to mm-hmm. be the ultimate accolade for art that we know is yeah. incredible. And, like, you know, this award doesn't necessarily validate mm-hmm. a project anymore. It's just, yeah. it's like, 
what is wrong with your taste mm. that this didn't win? Exactly. You know what's so great about this? Every time Beyonce gets snubbed, she somehow like announces another project. So she got snubbed Saturday night, the middle of the night. Um, and then the next day, we find out that she has a whole ass documentary mm-hmm. coming out on Monday. And she took over the internet immediately. So yeah, she doesn't meet your awards. But it's really exciting that she's dropping new stuff because usually a new film also means maybe new music. Yeah, and I have to say that this is one of those things where there are not a lot of surprises that make me mm-hmm. feel truly excited mm-hmm. or like... I don't know, uh, uh, just a, a sincere sense of yeah. surprise. And um, when I saw the tweet, I really also enjoyed that ABC Network changed their official handle to yes. ABC. And I was mm-hmm. like, somebody over there in your social media department knows what they're doing. Really, so, really brilliant. Yeah. Really brilliant. Well, let's take it to the timeline. What surprises do you want next from Beyonce? Tweet us using the hashtag AM to DM. A video. A vid- oh. An album. I want an album. Music. Visual you know, I'll arts. take anything. Anything will lift my spirits. She could just breathe and wink, and I'd be fine with it. I mean, that's good enough. Well, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. Cadaver dogs endure the exhausting task of finding Hurricane Dorian victims. And here's a tweet from Claudia Corner. A search and rescue volunteer told Brianna Sachs he'd personally seen at least 80 bodies of Hurricane Dorian victims. Their grim and daunting work continues. BuzzFeed News reporter Brianna Sachs joins us now. Good morning. Morning. So I want to know a little bit more uh, about this team of dogs. Um, what have they been tasked with doing? How how many dogs are there? And so forth. Sure. I just want to like uh, do a quick correction. So actually a doctor who had been, who has been assisting with the, like the death count said she had personally seen 80 to a hundred bodies. So it wasn't the, the rescue. Oh. Um, but the the dog, I mean, they have, you know, they're finding and marking quite a lot. Like when you're in the, the, the wreckage and the rubble, like you're seeing, as I mentioned in the story, kind of the marks with the D and the letters. But the, the dogs are from um, Burnaby, Canada. And um, a few of them have been on previous disasters in like Nepal, Haiti, and Katrina. And they're there because um, the gover- Bahamas uh, Emergency Center asked for help to search, to continue to search for the the missing and um, the dead who are still really buried in this unimaginable um, mound of debris that's uh, primarily in the communities of like Marsh Harbor, the mud, pigeon peas, which are in, um, on the great Abaco Island. And they're like kind of close to the, the water and the, the dock and the harbor there. So they got hit really, really hard. Mm. So how do the dogs actually locate these bodies as they're roaming around the island right now? Yeah, I mean, they're just like gingerly walking over the mounds of, of debris and pieces of, um, you know, stores and houses. And uh, there's a lot of exposed nails. So it's a really difficult task and was really fascinating to learn how they train for this. We met their handler, um, Mark Pullen, who started doing this in, in 1998. And they train with, um, you know, bits of human teeth, hair, band-aids, and they bury them in these uh, containers, like tube things. And they'll bury them in like different situations and circumstances. And the dogs will just train for that. Um, I learned that chicken flesh smells a lot like human flesh. So they have to like really train their noses to discern the difference. There are a lot of dead animals on on the island too, so that's it's been like a tough job for the the dogs to really suss out. Like, you know, is this a human? Like, what kind of what, what remains are these? Where are they? Um, yeah. 
Can you talk uh, a little bit about uh, the death toll and kind of just what the wreckage uh, is like on the island? Um, I understand that the number is expected to rise, at least the official number. Um, What do we know about the counting process and who's being counted and then who isn't being counted? Sure. So the death toll still stands at 50 people, which is difficult for a lot of residents because it's covered between 44 and 50 for about a week. Yet there are so many people still missing. The, uh, the, 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 the morticians are really overworked and overwhelmed. Uh, the Dr. Latoya Monroe, who I spent a lot of time with, told me that the morgue on Nassau, which is like the main island, was already kind of at capacity and they have a small team. So they're just really behind um, the, you know, they're having to store bodies in, in shipping containers and the counting process, you know, they're trying to find documents. A lot of the bodies are uh, bloated or badly decomposed. So IDing them has become more and more difficult. Um, a lot of Haitian immigrants and, and uh, they worked and lived in these small communities, as I mentioned before, or large communities, sorry, like the mud and pigeon peas and uh, Marsh Harbor. They were construction workers and, um, you know, they lived there for a while, but a lot of them didn't have documents. And so in the official death toll, I've, I've been told that, you know, they won't be there because they were undocumented. So, Brianna, outside of these, you know, emergency response teams, who is actually living on, in the Bahamas still? And what are the conditions like for those that have stayed behind? I, so I spent most of my time on Grand Bahama. So the eastern part of that island really got destroyed as, as well. So you have communities like High Rock, which I don't know if you've heard about. But a lot of these, um, and then the Great Abaco Island um, in Marsh Harbor and uh, the Mud and some other areas. Uh, a lot of people who stay behind are Haitians. A, because they said that they are, I mean, they're resilient. They've been through storm after storm and they've been through hardship after hardship and they're like well you know this is our home we're going to rebuild we're just going to kind of wait this out and uh, others are afraid to you know i spoke to a woman who was afraid to go to an official clinic for her foot because she was afraid of um getting deported so there's there's this kind of mix of like they we don't want to go because it's their home and then also they're afraid of of losing their home and not being allowed to, to come back um in grand bahama it's a little different. The people who stayed are, you know, there's a community of High Rock, which is, um, as I said, on the eastern part. And it's kind of, it's pretty far away from everything. There's about 40 or 50 people still there. And they're just kind of starting to clean out the wreckage of their homes themselves. And they're banding together and uh, they're you know, getting supplies dropped off every day. And they're not really wanting to, um, to leave. And they just want to kind of push forward and are very determined. Mm. Well, Brianna, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Mm. It's just horrific hearing more about, uh, you know, the wreckage yeah. and just how it's continued over days and days. Yeah, and also when you don't have that many resources, these, these kind of recovery processes take a long, long time. Mm. So we'll be continuing to follow that, but really uh, incredible stuff out of the Bahamas today. All right, here's a tweet from the Associated Press. Senior U.S. officials say satellite imagery supports their case that Iran was responsible for Saturday's attacks on key Saudi Arabian oil infrastructure. Here's the tweet from Bloomberg Africa. Drone strike wipes about 5.7 million barrels, or 5% of global supplies, in the worst sudden disruption to oil markets ever. Saudi Arabia can restart significant volume of oil production within days, but needs weeks to restore full capacity, sources say. 
Joining us today to discuss is BuzzFeed News senior reporter and world editor Hayes Brown. Good morning, Hayes. Good morning, guys. So tell us about this facility hit on Saturday and why did it have such a huge impact immediately? So two facilities were actually hit uh, in, this, in this attack in Saudi Arabia. One was an oil field that produces about 1.5 million barrels of oil a day. The other is, one, uh, is the largest refinery uh, facility in Saudi Arabia, which refines 7 million barrels of oil a day. Now, this strike on it was kind of massive. Like, you could see the plumes of smoke from space. So, it halted production by 5.7 million barrels of oil a day, so about 5% of the world's, you know, output. Uh, and that's led to prices of oil jumping. Uh, right now, they're 10% higher than they were before. So it's not great to have, I believe that this is the largest single day uh, uh, interruption in oil production since the 79 revolution in Iran. Hmm. Now, the Iran-aligned group, uh, Houthi group, has mm -hmm. claimed credit for the attacks. Can you talk a little bit about the implications uh, and uh, you know how that is viewed by the U.S.? Yes, sure. So this is all playing out as part of a proxy battle between Iran and Saudi Arabia. The Saudis are and have been for years engaged in a military conflict in Yemen, trying to push out the Iranian-backed Houthi group who took over the country uh, years ago, and they say they're there to back the actual Yemeni government. It's been a massive human rights crisis. The Saudis bombing indiscriminately. Iran arming and funding the Houthis. Uh, it's a huge mess. So uh, the Houthis, according to the United Nations and their experts, do have access to technology that Iran has provided them, including the drones that they say were used to carry out this strike. But the U.S. government is apparently operating under the assumption that these attacks were not from the Houthis, that they could not have pulled this off because Yemen's to the south, the facilities are in the north. And that tweet that you mentioned from the AP, that satellite imagery, they say, as far as I can tell, their claim is that because, you know, the way, the pattern of destruction inside of the facilities says that they, the attacks did not come from the south. But they, we'll see how that plays out, uh, considering the, how the administration has been kind of jumping the gun lately in terms of pushing for punishing Iran for all kinds of things. Mm. So, as you mentioned, Iran is saying that, you know, this isn't our fault, we didn't do this. But President Trump has said that we are locked and loaded, and now Iran is saying we're ready for full-fledged war. Why is this escalating so quickly between our two countries? Because things have been, like, on a bad foot for a minute since the Trump administration pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal uh, that was agreed to in 2015. Since then, they've been putting on what's called the ma a maximum pressure campaign, reloading sanctions onto Iran, hoping that we'll get them back to the table to put an even stronger deal in place. That's the theory anyway, but there's no signs of that really working. So back in June, I was here when uh, the Iranians shot down a U.S. drone and the U.S. nearly bombed Iran in response. Those attacks were called off in the last seconds, but since then, you know, things have not been great. I will say, though, that in the most recent weeks, there was talk about Trump potentially meeting with Iranian President Hassan Rouhani uh, on the sidelines of the U.N. General Assembly in the next couple of weeks. That seems less likely moving forward, but who knows? Uh, the Trump, Trump changes his mind all the time. The talks could still go on, or Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, who was the first to blame Iran, could have his way and we just cancel those entirely. Uh, all of this got me thinking a little bit about John Bolton. Um, how does his departure play into any of this? Oh, he's going to be so sad if it does turn <laughs> out that we actually wind up having a military conflict with Iran right after he left, since that was one of his biggest pushes. He's always been about regime change in Iran. So if he misses out on that, 
well, not, he's not going to be pleased about it. But then again, he might be very happy that it happened anyway, even without his having to do anything. I think that um, Bolton could be seen as a, a, uh, a destabilizing force in the government. But on the other hand, this crisis escalating so quickly, I don't know if it matters if he's in the room or not. Mm. Well, Hayes, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. I feel like we just need a little meter or something of like, how worried should we be this time for every time Hayes comes on to talk about (laughs) it? It's really, every time Hayes comes on, I'm like, are we going to war today? Yes or no? Is it happening? No, maybe. Yes, Hayes is the kind of angel of death for us here. (laughs) Well, coming up, Alex is talking with Dominicana author Angie, Angie Cruz. But up next, it's time for Fire Tweets. Fire! Fire! Welcome back. It's now time for fire tweets. Look at my power. I'm so powerful. Okay. (laughs) November 6th, you tweeted. Yo, the weekend be like an hour and a half. It really is. I just was here 90 minutes ago. I it watched feels the whole, that way. Just watched Game of Thrones and came back to work. It's really it go, sad. You know, it just <laughs> it went by far too fast. We need longer weekends, everyone. We do. We do. Three-day weekends all yes, the time. All the time. <laughs> all right. Viking, you tweeted. If you are on the West Coast, good morning. If you are on the East Coast, good afternoon. And if you are in Iowa, corn. Corn. That's how you say hello. <laughs> That's how you greet. Oh my God. Well, we will be doing that this we week. We will be. We'll be in, in Iowa, Iowa later this week. Starting Thursday night to Friday. So you'll see us. We'll be on the show a little bit Friday morning before we uh, do the LGBT presidential forum, which yes. more info on that later. Yeah. Rachel, you tweeted, the coconut oil has hardened. Summer is officially over. Ooh. And you know you know what our dear tweeter is uh, talking about? It's like when it actually... Mm-hmm. In the jar. That's, that's you can't the end. get it out. Yeah, no, like that's the end. You yeah. know, when it's not in the current state of liquid all the time. <laughs> you can make a, you can put that in your <laughs> coffee though. Do you know this? I have heard that you can. Bulletproofing coffee, like fat and butter. I'm it's good. Delicious. I'm not that dumb. We'll do a segment on it. Okay. It's gonna be cute. All right, Manic. You tweeted me being extra gay when I compliment a girl so she knows I am not a predator. <laughs> I do that shit constantly. I mean, all is right. there like a queer lady version of that? I don't know. I don't know, because I, I know as gay men, we are trained to like, you meet a new person, and you're like, oh my God, hey girl, that's such a beautiful outfit. And it's I like think, signaling, like, I don't yes, want to right. sleep like, with I'm you. Not gonna, I'm not being And then creepy. I think women also have been trained to be like, oh, this is great. And like, yeah. even like homophobic women do like, <sighs> like whatever this out, they're like, oh, this is great. There's just so, such relief yeah. for all of us. <laughs> they're like, yeah. this is not a predator. All right, tweet of the day? <laughs> yes. Okay, comes from Titus. Avoiding soda for health reasons, then drinking alcohol, <laughs> which is me. That's what I do. I, I don't drink soda. I defend this to my death. Because, like, I, yeah. It's like, cause it, some people drink, you know, soda every meal, and I'm not shaming you with your food options, but like drinking a Coke with every meal versus me having, you know, seven vodka sodas over a weekend, vastly different, I think, in, look, my, in my mind. Look, these are all the choices that we're making. Yeah, at so, least I'm not drinking like a rum and Coke. Yeah. There you go. That's true. I mean, you know, it's a little bit of balance, a little I, bit of balance. I love, in life. It. I love that you support my issues. I do. I do because Thank I you. share that this is an issue that I also have. Oh my God. Yay. <laughs> us. Well, coming up, you get to see my sit down with comedian and actor Michelle Buteau. But up next, we are discussing the renewed allegations against Judge Brett Kavanaugh. This is from A to Z. Over the weekend, the New York Times published a story renewing allegations of sexual assault against Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh from a forthcoming book, The Education of Brett Kavanaugh, An Investigation. Brian Baer tweeted, the FBI has provided a list of 25 potential corroborating witnesses on this allegation alone, but even the FBI admits their hands were tied by the limited scope allowed by the Senate. The entire Kavanaugh nomination process was a railroad job from the beginning. What a Shonda. Meanwhile, in the wake of that story, this happened, Sam Stein tweeted, 
Antonio Brown was credibly accused of rape last week and is catching touchdown passes today. Was suspending him until the issue resolved or investigated not an option? Ugh. Yeah. So I think, you know, what both of these stories point to are uh, credible allegations and uh-huh. then a real sense of impunity um, for the accused. Yeah. Um, of course, if you did not see uh, the New York Times uh, published an excerpt of this forthcoming book about Brett Kavanaugh, uh, and you can read the details of this particular allegation um, for yourselves. But I think one of the big points of this is that uh, Deborah Ramirez, the woman who is mm-hmm. uh, accusing Brett Kavanaugh, um, provided the FBI with that list of 25 names mm-hmm. of people who could back up her story. Um, and it really just documents all the ways in which, uh, you know, she was reliable. Um, she just really, you know, there's no such thing as the perfect victim, no. but how, uh, you know, she had all these aspects to her that were really sympathetic, mm-hmm. and yet none of it mattered. No. And right? what I find so stunning about both these examples is it just shows you how, when we talk about how, People don't, you need to believe uh, folks when they come forward and believing uh, survivors um, is that we're still not there yet. We're still, and systematically, we're not there yet. You know, our systems in place are saying, you know what, survivors can come forward, submit all of these, uh, this evidence, really go through the process of being interviewed. And, you know, the system's still gonna protect the person who's at the center of this. And that's kind of insane to me that we are so obsessed with not dealing with sexual violence in this country that we're like, okay, you can submit like this grievance, but we're gonna let this person keep like playing this football game, be a Supreme Court judge until proven guilty. When when people do voice that these things happen to them, they this is most people are not lying about this. This is a very serious thing. And these folks should not be allowed to sit on a on a judge bench or play in a field as this is going forward. They should be pulled and people should be looking at this and taking this far more seriously. Because what the signals to people is that, oh well, well, even if they come forward, nothing's gonna happen to you. Right. Like exactly. nothing's big. So it's fine. Just wait it out and just litigate it out so no one will actually get anything done. So yeah. it's really stupid. And, and one big piece of this story is that, uh, you know, there are questions if Kavanaugh lied when he was under oath because mm-hmm. he denied these allegations. Um, but I think, you know, what you're getting at is this idea that no matter how credible the allegation is, no matter how much backup you have, no much Uh, no matter how much diligence you do yourself to prove, Mm -hmm. um, it it doesn't make a difference. And we always talk about why people don't come forward and Mm -hmm. report. Like, I think oftentimes when we have these big stories um, around sexual assault and misconduct, people always ask, like, well, why didn't so-and-so come forward 16 years ago when it happened? And it's because Mm -hmm. of the system. It's because the entire system makes it so that why would you even bother coming forward? And I think having to watch this, having to go through the Kavanaugh confirmation, Mm -hmm. that just brought up so much for people. People experience, yes, having to relive mm-hmm. it on your own, and then um, you know also having to go through the motions of uh, watching Christine Blasey Ford regurgitate mm-hmm. all of it, um, and then ultimately have him confirm. That mm-hmm. is really, really difficult to witness. So yeah. um, I personally, I see all of this uh, with such uh, cynicism mm-hmm. um, uh, of both feeling. A great deal of admiration for Deborah Ramirez mm-hmm. for coming forward, for outlining her story, um, for doing all of this work, but then also the sense that the status quo just yeah. isn't going to change. It's really not. It's so. really, really not. Yeah. It's just kind of this thing. What I think people should take away from this is, you know what, on a macro scale right now with Kavanaugh, maybe we don't have a lot of power in controlling how he is dealt with or how that those proceedings are dealt with, but in your day-to-day lives, we all know someone that is a survivor of this type of abuse, so believe them. That's where you can make the real change here. Even if publishing your story in the New York Times isn't stopping anything, let's not worry about that macro yeah. thing. Your microwave, yeah. you can change your your town, your city, your house every day. Yeah, and like, let's talk about the systems mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, keep all of this intact and, yep. uh, and and allow this to persist. So we want to hear from you. Uh, how are you coping with the Kavanaugh news? Tweet us using the hashtag and to the end. Ooh, all right. Well, up next, I'm talking to the hilarious Michelle Buteau. 
Welcome back, y'all. I'm sitting down with comedian and actor Michelle Buteau. Yes! You probably recognized from her incredible memorable roles in Someone Great and Always Be My Maybe, a favorite, and is one of the stars of First Wives Club on BET Plus. Good morning, girl. Hey, boo. Hi, so good to have you here. People have been like looking forward to this for oh weeks Oh my weeks God. Weeks. People so. need to dream bigger. This girl, can't no, be you it. are the dream. Come Carry on, that. Can't say Simone <laughs> on your show. That's what we got. I love it. I love what you guys have done with IKEA over here. We it is really, amazing. Girl. All all the knickknacks. I mean, who is dusting this? This is great. I don't know, but I should probably find out and thank them because this is a lot to do. It is. I feel like I'm in a Pinterest episode. <laughs> Girl, let's move. <laughs> I'm so sorry. You've got questions. Look what? at this iPad. Well, is that, that yours or is yes, it theirs? It's theirs. I'm too okay. broke for that. Anyway, let's talk. <laughs> but you're not too broke in this new show, First Wives Club, and we should take a Ooh. look at that before we get going. Get off your ass. We are going out Tonight. Okay, see, no, I don't own any clothes that don't double as pajamas. And I haven't shaved in like, when did we graduate? A long time. <laughs> that is exactly why Hazel Rochelle has her own personal glam squad. <gasps> what? Oh my God, I'm getting a makeover like I'm a Today Show? We're going out. There's <laughs> so much joy in that clip. Thank I've watched you so it much. over and over. It's I think so, so much. Me so, too. So, you know, I'm a huge fan of the film that this is based on. Yeah. Were you? Is this kind of like oh my God. a big thing for you? <laughs> yes. I mean, rom-coms, absolutely, but also anything that dealt with female female empowerment mm -hmm. when I was, um, let's say, a teenager mm -hmm. was amazing. I mean, Bette Midler, Goldie Hawn, Diane Keaton, that is the trafficta. The icons. I mean, I wanted to, like, go get bangs and, like, a ribbed turtleneck and live my best life. Are you serious? <laughs> so the fact that I am able to be in like the Brown City reboot. I'm like, sign me up! And also do you drug test? They do yeah. not. And if you do, give me 24 hours. <laughs> she needs some time. She needs some time. <laughs> well, well, what's already so striking in this kind of reboot or this reimagining of the film is that you all reference some iconic moments. And one yes. of them in the pilot is the whole like, you know, wa the window washing machine outside yes. dropping, which was very funny. Yes. So we're going to see more of these, like the kind oh, of for iconic sure. songs. Somebody called them Easter eggs the other day and I was like that's very smart there's going to be a lot of Easter eggs and it's going to be like really interesting if people can find them and mm -hmm. recognize them but you know we didn't even know you mm -hmm. know so every time we would film something I'm like ah that's the thing <laughs> from the thing right and Tracy you're like on the rig you're like, like oh my god you're going to drop me shit <laughs> I know I was like are we really on a rig because like what kind of insurance do we have we're like green screen I'm like oh I had no idea but it's fun it's so fun and obviously you know it's about female relationships mm -hmm. and like, you know, as Ryan always says, taking back our own narrative. And I feel like, you know, whether you're a man or a woman, life is hard. Relationships are harder. You know, your job is taking over and it's easy to get lost in the sauce. And I feel like for this, you know, you'll come away feeling empowered, but also laughing because it's mm -hmm. just funny. It's, it's just one big kiki. And Jill yeah. Scott is... People are going to be so surprised how funny Jill Scott Jilly is. Jilly <laughs> Jill Scott funny. And Ryan's like a triple threat. I'm just like, oh, it's I like can't. The casting is just incredible. It's incredible. pretty good. Well, you mentioned that, you know, this film is so much about like empowerment and, and people reclaiming their stories. Yes. Um, but this film throughout the 90s, was that for white women, really? I mean, this, I remember wanting to be my mother who's a white woman. This made me want to be a white woman. You know, rich, yes. in New York, all these things. Yes. What makes this Who doesn't want to be a white woman? No, really? I want to get taxis any time of the day. Oh, and good credit, just naturally. I mean, I want high. people to hold the plane for me when I'm late. Yes, <laughs> white women do it. Well, you know, beyond those kind of yes. economic reasons, mm -hmm. why is this so important to have black women front center in this remaking of it? You know, people always ask, you know, why does a reboot have to be with black people? That is a question people have asked me. And it's just like, 
when you watch a show, it's so much more than that. You know, a real good story and a real fun time can transcend a lot of different things. And it's also important to show diversity. You know, 25, 30 years ago, people weren't ready. Now Hollywood, things have shifted. And it's important, you know, that everybody feels seen and heard. Mm-hmm. Yes, for sure. And yeah. I think you've been doing a few reboots lately. So you have First Wife's Club and then Tales of the City. Very famous queer. I forgot. That's Thank a you. Whole, yes. You're like, I'm so busy. Girl, I'm booked and busy. I don't <laughs> so remember. Busy. I'm like weekend at Bernie's right now. I'm like, what? <laughs> well, what do you, why do you think people are so obsessed with nostalgic uh, TV right now? And what do you think about this movement? You know what? I think it's pretty special. The thing about Tales of the City, it's it's sort of just like picked up where it left off, Mm -hmm. which was amazing for Armistead because people want more, Mm -hmm. you know? They want to see what this world would be like in the time we're living in now, which is really interesting. And if you you haven't watched Tales of the City on Netflix, it's streaming right now, you should watch it. It's a really good watch. You know, um, I think it's important and educational. Again, getting back to people feeling seen and heard. I'm so proud to be part of that project. I had an audition for Laura Linney. And I wow. could not look her in the eye. I was like, you're a mountain. And she was like, do you want to take that again? I was like, do you want me to take it again? I was like, whatever you like. want. I know. I was like, whatever you like, right? Coming to America, Google. Yes. Is there going to be another reboot of that? Probably. Will you be in it? No, girl. I will. I will. Who am I kidding? You would sign. You, I mean, you're taking all these bookings. You're like, yes, we'll do yes. this, do this, do this. Yes. Well, you know, with all of these bookings, you've had so many films out this year. What are you getting recognized most with? And you know, it depends what it depends what neighborhood I'm in. Okay, because I have a story about someone recognizing you, but I want to hear yours first. Oh my god, <laughs> I have too many stories. You go first. Okay, so I hear my my friend uh, Sylvia Obell, who hosts a different show. She was like, "Oh yeah, she. Uh, I see her on my platform on the subway a lot in Brooklyn." Oh! Yes. So, and I hear you get recognized on subways all the time. I do. Well, after Someone Great, that, you know, uh, which is also on Netflix mm-hmm. right now, and uh, written and directed by uh, Jen Robinson, you know, after that scene on the subway platform, people definitely come up to me and ask me questions about penis leons, <laughs> good teeth, breakups. And, like, I think... You know, before I even started doing comedy, people would ask me stuff all the time. I think I just have a very friendly look. Mm-hmm. I am actually a people person. You know, I don't know if it's like the big boobs, the freckles, the hair, mm-hmm. whatever. People are into it. Back fat brings people together. Ooh. So, yeah, if I'm, <laughs> yeah, and if I'm in San Francisco, a lot of it's like Tales of the City yeah. and also Always Be My Maybe, also streaming on Netflix. Ow, you gonna stay booked <laughs> and busy. Netflix marketing Ooh. right now is like, yes. Yes, <laughs> Netflix, yes. Brought your friend's password and get on top of it. <laughs> Um, yeah, because those uh, shows, that the, mm-hmm. that show and that movie mm-hmm. took place in San Francisco. Um, yeah, it just depends. And then, like, weird random markets. Like, I was in Vancouver, and somebody came up to me. They're like, I love your podcast. I'm like, what? You're like, you listen to adulting, WNYC. Exactly. Like, I got your plug in, too. WNYC, oh, my God, adulting. WNYC, mm-hmm. adulting and late night whenever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just so if you want to know. Okay, so I have to ask you about one of your co-stars. Uh, and, and always be my baby, Keanu Reeves. Yes. What's it like working with him? Well, I really can't answer that because I technically didn't have any scenes with him, mm-hmm. but I did meet him on the carpet, and he is really, he's just really sweet and polite. Like, he went to go shake my hand. I was like, nah, with these boobs. We going to for a hug. And he's like, oh, oh, oh. And I was like, gee. <laughs> That's it. That's my story. I sound, That's it. <laughs> I sound like I have sassy to rent. But yes, that is it. Uh, oh, I also want to mention that I'm going to start my tour this Thursday okay. called Beautopia. Uh-oh. Yeah, I'll be at the Sacramento Punchline. So if you know where Sacramento is, <laughs> it's the capital. Come. 
Oh, there we go. Shows. Well, before I let you go, I want to play a little game if you're down. I love games. Because you're in a show about divorce, which a lot of us have been through. Oh, God, the right through. one's bigger, and she's and, ready to come ooh, out. She popped up and said, hello, girls. Yes. Um, and you also have your adult. It's like I'm Democrat, but she's independent. You know what I mean? <laughs> With she's you. so big. She's like the Disneyland <laughs> parking lot. I'm getting lost. You know what? We're going to just jump into this. Oh, I need okay. Some advice. I need advice from Let's you. Let's do it. Because I love you, you give out advice. Are you ready for this? Shout out to so whoever made throw. this. Uh, yes, I, yes, someone did make that. It was not me. So thank you. Someone. Thank you. <laughs> so I'm going to give you a scenario. And uh-huh. you're going to say, let it go. Okay. Or keep it. Okay. I think, you know, dump me. Let it's it, the same let thing, it go, right? No. Oh. Okay. We're going to figure this out. All right. So first one. What do you do if your partner forgot to pick up the kids from school? Forget? Yeah. So will you let it go or you dump this person? Oh, uh, I say let it go because things happen like the one time. If but it you- happens a lot, then you got to do this. So twice, leave them. No, this is confusing though. Let it like is let it, it go. Let like, it go. Like, and let it wash it. off your like. Let it. Oh. Back. Yeah. Yeah. Let it go. Let it go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. I forget to do stuff all the time. Okay. What happens if your partner? Slides into a model's DMs behind your back. Like it's trying to hit on a model on Instagram. Oh my God, dump them. So dump, so forgets the kids at school, keep them. Model flirtation. Dump. Yeah, I hear the judgment in your voice. <laughs> but when I'm you, just trying to figure out my own boundaries. No, because when you have kids, you are tired, okay. right? So, and you have two kids. Yeah, we have twins. Mm-hmm. And um, you, you forget a lot of stuff. Now, if it's a habit, it's like obviously, but... You know, you can't break a family up because somebody forgot to pick the kids up from school now. That's crazy. That's like every Jim Carrey movie. He's like running to go see the play. And there's seizures there. My parents forgot me at school all the time. So oh, my God. But they're divorced. Anyway, moving on. Um, <laughs> dating someone going through a divorce. Oh. So you meet someone. Let like, it go. Yes. Let it go. Yeah, you can do Ride that. You can do that. Because chances are, if you are with someone who's getting divorced, the marriage or the relationship has been dead for a long time. Mm-hmm. So they have sort of parted ways. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So you're and very so optimistic now, about this. I'm not. I'm optimistic. I'm also realistic. Girl, I'm 42. I know I look good. <laughs> yeah. You're like, so, well, like, yeah, I've seen some things. Okay, okay. So, what about moving in with someone you just met and it's only been a month? They ask you. I mean, is it in Manhattan? Because <laughs> if it's in Manhattan, <laughs> you got to let it go and do it because rent is, is a lot. crazy. I moved to Manhattan earlier this year, and I now get why you all are so obsessed with talking about real estate. I literally walked down, like, Fifth Avenue looking up, dreaming at yeah, all these apartments. Yeah, just keep dreaming. It's the only thing you can afford. It's just <laughs> a dream. <laughs> no, but look, this will take you places. Okay, my last one before we go. It will. They don't. They don't like your best friend. Um, I don't like my best friend. That's okay. Let it go. I'm Girl. really. They're all annoying. I love them, but get it together. <laughs> oh, oh my god. This has been so much fun. Oh my god, Michelle, thank you. This has been just the best way to start. Where my is the mimosa? I'm done. Girl, that's coming. It's coming. Where? <laughs> Well, if you, if can't, you can't get enough Michelle, season one of First Wives Club is streaming on BET Plus this Thursday, September 19th. 19th. Up next, more AM to, to DM. DM. I'm fired. <laughs> <laughs>
What prompted this? I mean, I think I think kind of a few different factors. Um, I went through a big breakup earlier this year. I was just feeling like really raw and just was thinking like, I'm just gonna like let myself deal with this in whatever way I'd like. Um, also not feeling too great about the state of the world right I mean, now. That, that's, yeah. More so, so. Yeah, been a bit of a tough summer. Well, in your essay, you call it your, I think, fuck it summer. Yeah. Um, what did you learn from having a fuck it summer? So I learned that while it can be um, convenient and fun just to subsist on uh, seamless and old Bud Light from a party two months ago <laughs> um, for most of the nights of the week, um, seems like a good idea at the time, but long term doesn't actually feel that great. Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, I learned that I should maybe start taking a little bit better care of myself. Yeah, I feel like uh, it is just one of those lessons that sometimes you learn by going through it. Yeah, you know? just yeah. had to get through it. Um, it reminded me a little bit of uh, the idea of a hot girl summer um, mm. in terms of that idea of just being <laughs> like, fuck it, I'm going to do me and do whatever yes. I want. Do you think that um, any pieces of the, uh, the, the ideas around a hot girl summer are also rooted in nihilism? Wow, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I think that there can be overlaps in terms of, I mean, I I feel like a fuck it kind of attitude can be like, oh, I want to wear what I want and do what I want. Like, I do, I do think that there can be positive aspects to having a sort of fuck it attitude. And I think if it leads to you feeling yourself, then yeah, then yeah. that's great. Um, well, you covered a lot of different pop culture references um, in this piece. One of them was Britney Runs a Marathon. Um, yes. When you saw the film, it, it really elicited an emotional reaction from you. And you write about um, uh, having a, a kind of a complicated relationship with the wellness industry. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think I think um, a lot of a lot of women that I know have, have complicated relationships with the wellness industry. I mean, you think like, oh, what's so bad about being encouraged to like to take care of your body and to feel good? But um, I feel like the wellness industrial complex has kind of replaced diet culture. Yeah, right? yeah. Like it's just a, it can be a way to pressure, just a nicer gloss to the idea that women need to dress and look and fit into a certain kind of box. Yeah, although now it's like under the guise of self-care and yes, on a exactly. sheet mask and yeah, exactly. your whole self and you're like, actually this is kind of just selling me the same exact thing as it was before. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, one of the things uh, that I was struck by is that actually you, uh, come to the conclusion of kind of being against nihilism, and you did actually decide to change some of your habits. I did, um, which, you know, stay tuned. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully it'll last. But, but um, yeah, I threw away my jewel, so step that, one. Yeah, yeah, step one. Um, it seems I'm not alone in that department either. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and I've, I've tried to, started renting my clothes instead of going on shopping yeah. sprees. Um Trying to cook in more. I don't know. I'm just taking little steps to try. Yeah. And those those all seem to be uh, just very, like very accessible steps that you can take. Yeah. Um, but like you know, in the midst of this news cycle and like impending climate doom and all of these things, yes. like, why even try to be hopeful? How after kind of going through all of this, did you land on the idea to the idea or to try to seek any little bit of hope? I mean, I think I think I've been doing a, a lot of reading um, and listening to activists who have a lot more experience grappling with these kinds of things than I do, and I, I think that the only real way that we're going to get through our current cultural moment is is through collective action, even if you feel like your own tiny individual effort 
won't actually matter that much. I think just even getting in the spirit of feeling like you are doing something mm. can prime you better for the future. So, mm. Well, I have to note this last tweet from the day your story came out. <laughs> Today I canceled dueling, then a few hours later the federal government canceled dueling. Makes you think. <laughs> Suspicious. Around the same time. Yeah, around the same time. <laughs> I, I feel like, I, yeah, I feel like I, I might have influenced the culture a little bit. No. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I think, I think, like, I think a lot of people have noticed, you know, recent reports of jewels, like, and other e-cigarettes, like, starting or starting to kill people. So I yeah. feel like I've, I only, you know, I'm just one of many right now who's been like, maybe these are not a great idea. Yeah. 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 Well, we can leave it there. Thank you so much for joining with me. Um, this, for your, me. your writing just really resonated, so it was Thanks, wonderful. Thanks, Alex. Yeah. The power of the story had the literal implications. In the meantime, we'll be focusing uh, hours on Dominicana. Up next, I talk with author Angie Cruz. Here's a tweet from Coral Pena. Yo, Dominicana by Angie Cruz is the hottest book in town. EW said it, Vanity Fair said it, now BuzzFeed's saying it. If you don't buy this book, you have truly played yourself. I'm joined now by the author of Dominicana, Angie Cruz. Welcome. So nice to be here. Yes, so good to have you and to get to talk about this book. Um, and I want to start out with uh, what the book is about. Um, it's based on your mom's story uh, of coming to America. Why did you want to tell that story? Well, you know, I had, um, I grew up with my mother, and one of the things about um, my mother and my family, and I may be in Latinx culture altogether is that they have these stories that they don't want to tell because mm. they're very difficult. And the less you want to tell me a story, the more I want to know. So even though it is, I say it's inspired by my mother's story. She immigrated in the 1970s um, to a man who was twice her age, married off by my grandmother. Um, so it's inspired, but the book is completely puro cuento, as I like to say. Mm. Now, you mentioned uh, this idea of taking things that were unspoken and mm. making them spoken. Um, what were some of the themes and topics that you wanted to do that with? Well, I was interested in talking about um, the silence around domestic violence, for example, um, the child bride. You know, recently I just read an article that 200,000 women in the United States actually have been married, um, ha were child brides between 2000 and 2015 um, in that span of 15 years. And I think that a lot of times people read the book Dominicana and say, oh, this is something that happens abroad, mm. which it is something that's happening all over the world, but it's also something that's happening in the United States. And it wasn't until very recently that even New York State, because there is no federal law to protect children, um, mm -hmm. to be married off, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. um, it's state by state that New York actually upped the age from, I think, 14 to 16. So for me, like, the silence around all of these things that we might think it's an other problem, like outside of the, the conversation in the United States or an immigrant problem, I wanted to, I wanted to write a book and talk about, wait, this is our communities, our, everyone. This is a, a, an issue for women and about women, mm -hmm. yeah. Now, when it comes to immigration, um, what do you hope that uh, readers take away from this story, especially in such a fraught political moment? Well, you know, what's interesting to me is that you never know what the readers can take away, <laughs> right? So one of the most surprising things for me has been receiving um, the feedback from readers. And I cannot tell you, almost every other day I get a note from a reader who says that after they finished reading the book, they called their mother to talk about their past. Wow. So um, many of them have been immigrants, but many of them have been um, women in the United States who were estranged by their from their grandparents or grandmothers uh, and decided to 
talk to them or ask them questions that they never thought to ask after reading the book. Mm -hmm. So in this way, it's given me a lot of optimism around mm -hmm. literature because I feel we are in a fraught moment where it's so difficult to even get out of bed sometimes thinking about yeah. all the things that are going wrong with our system. But in some ways to think that reading still allows an intimacy with stories that let us, I guess, I don't like to talk about art as therapy at all, but I think that that gives you an opportunity to maybe build a bridge mm -hmm. with someone that you've estranged yourself from or don't understand. To me, that's what's exciting mm -hmm. about books. Now, I've seen this uh, story characterized as coming of age story. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about that characterization? Well, she is 15 and she is coming of age. And I think one of the interesting things about being separated from your family is it through the detention process that's happening right now in the United States or through marriage, is that, you know, imagine being a, a young person, a child, and then suddenly forced into adulthood. Um, so I think that it's correct. Mm. You said that this book took you 14 years to get right. Um, why did it take that long? And what about it were you hoping to get right? Well, you know, I think that one of the things about writing a story that is so, a narrative that's so underrepresented in literature is to think about, we don't know when there's going to be another book written, one. But also I think that for me, because the story was so personal, um, I didn't know exactly what was the point of view that I should have been telling this story. Mm. So I moved from a very far end omniscient point of view mm. to a very close. I decided finally that the right answer was to write the book from a first person POV mm -hmm. to allow the character to tell her own story. And I think that's what took a long time, me figuring out what is it that I really want to say, mm. and also to have the courage to talk about abuse. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. as a survivor myself, I think that one of the difficult things is that once you put out a story, I also knew that this would bring a lot of readers to me that would want to talk about this, yeah. and I had to be ready to talk about it. And actually, everyone says, oh, 14 years, but I can't think of a better time for this book to come out than yeah. now. Yeah. One, because of the rise of the Me Too movement, where I feel women are ready to talk about it explicitly and openly in a different way than we were even three years ago, um, where I think there was still a lot of protection around men and the things they do in private um, and that power dynamic. So I feel like, thank God, I took that long and I'm really mm -hmm. happy it's out now because I'm ready to have that conversation, but I also feel that readers are ready to have that yeah, conversation. Yeah, I think people are, are really ready to have I've it. I've noticed that in book readings. Like, women are just ready. They're pissed off. Yeah. And they're ready to talk about what it means to be a woman and patriarchy and misogyny. And I'm very excited about this moment. Yeah. It also feels like, uh, you know, having more art and having more writing about it helps lift the shame around it, which totally. to me feels like such a big reason why mm -hmm. people are willing to talk about it too. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I do feel that. Yeah. Um, I also heard that you wrote this book while you were on the subway on Well, your actually, phone. this is or not there the pieces book. Of, okay. No, no, no. This, so I'm working on a second book. Oh, okay, That's got coming it. out, Immigrant Handbook. Um, it's coming out in 2021. And that book, while I was trying to figure out some of the issues that I was having around this book, which really was around voice, I started working on another book on the subway. Oh, got it. Different <laughs> yes, book on the subway. Yes, different book on the subway. But you know, as a writer, I feel like all of it is feeding each other. Like the book I'm working, that book is a book that's set in a contemporary moment mm. around unemployment. I think there's a forgotten population of women who are middle-aged who got laid off from their jobs that they had been working on forever in their 50s, and they never went back to work. Mm. And I was interested in that population and, you know, kind of the invisibility of what that looks like. 
is it hard to write on the subway or is it, does it just help get it done? Like, well, you know, the, the subway in New York City is so inefficient yeah, that yeah. it's the <laughs> you perfect have time. place. Yeah. yeah. And I, you know, and I remember coming to New York because, you know, I'm based in Pittsburgh and I was coming to New York and everyone was so frustrated. And it was like, you never want to move back to New York. You can't get around anywhere. It takes two hours to get anywhere. And I thought, well, why can't we use this time as a residency? Mm-hmm. And I started using that time to write. And what I found is that it invigorated my work. Mm -hmm. Um, In a way, I couldn't be lazy about finishing a scene. Um, I remember one time I was working on a scene for a story, um, one of the sections of the book, and the train broke down. And I was like, yes, because I needed more time. And everyone else was grumbling. Of course, of course. And I was like, oh, this is actually perfect. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I have to say I feel similarly because I read books when I'm on the subway. Exactly. So I'm like, oh, that's great. I can like steal a little bit more time to It's the get same some feeling, done. right? So once yeah. you mark a certain amount a certain time of your day for your writing practice or your reading practice, then it becomes a very different kind of experience. Mm. Yeah. Well, it has been so cool getting to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining me. No, thank you so much for inviting me. Dominicana is available wherever books are sold. Up next, we're reading your tweets. Welcome back, y'all. I love this idea of riding on a train instead of being stressed out about all the noise and people. Getting your riding done. Yeah. It's really brilliant. It's amazing. I might have to try it because I feel like pretty much every train I'm ever on has some kind of delay yeah. or something. Might so as well be productive. Yeah, exactly. You know Amtrak does a riding residency across country? You're yeah, you can ride the train. You have to apply, of course, and I've never done this, but you know, you can do a residency while riding a train across country. I think that, I that, this that idea. sounds like a little bit more romantic than being underground than on the like sea. a hot, gross <laughs> New York City subway crammed into no a bathroom. Million people. Exactly. Yeah, 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 I got, yeah. Okay, fair, 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 fair. <laughs> I, you know, I'm just giving you still, options, a, buff, a buffet of, uh, of riding yes, yes. transportation. I'm inspired, I'm inspired. <laughs> Stuff. Well, let's get to y'all's tweets. Kristen tweeted this following our conversation about Brett Kavanaugh. When you're famous, they let you do it. The current president of the United States. Ooh. Yeah, I mean, whenever we're talking about one of these stories, it's like, you know, the president was accused by, what, like 15 so So many. Over women dozen, of yeah. sexual misconduct. Oh, yes. yes. It just, and he said that. Yeah, and he said that. That's our president. Yeah, we wanted to know what surprise project do you want to see from Beyonce? The so-called comrade dad said, divorce papers. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all are not shit for that <laughs> at all. I'm not responding to that yeah. one. Thank you. Yeah, but we have no further comments. I, I love the First Amendment, though. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you to our guests today, Brianna Sachs, Hayes Brown, Shannon Keating, Angie Cruz, and Michelle Buteau. It was so hilarious. So that was so delightful. Oh. We'll, we'll be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day. 